Let's say good morning. Um, for those of you who do not know me, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at Oak Valley, and um, we are in our series through Psalm 119 right now. And um, Pastor Jeffrey from Scotts Hill got us started in this a couple of weeks ago, and I'm thankful for his teaching and preaching. Uh, Pastor Booney taught last week uh, as well. Thankful for what he brought us from God's Word. And I have the privilege this morning of preaching the third. Um, sermon in this series, and then as you know, Pastor Jimmy will be back and, and we'll preach the fourth uh, and final portion of our series next week. Um, him and the, the team are on, well, beginning their journey back to the states from Ghana. They'll be flying out about uh, five, fi- yeah, 5.50 this evening, our time, and they will arrive back in Wilmington tomorrow around 4.35 p.m., if you have nothing to do on a Monday afternoon at 4.35 tomorrow, I'm sure that they would love to see you uh, greet them at the airport tomorrow as they return home. Um, but pray for them as they, as they fly back. Um, not that they have much control over it, but um, they would be comforted in, in God and his goodness. Speaking of flying, exactly 15 years ago this past Monday, U.S. Airways Flight 1549, it was an Airbus A320, piloted by Captain Sully Sullenberger and his first officer, Jeffrey Skiles, carrying 155 souls, took off from New York's LaGuardia Airport at 3.26 p.m. Less than two and a half minutes later, they were at an altitude of only 2,800 feet, and they struck a flock of Canadian geese, um, resulting in a shutdown of both engines. During in-flight emergencies such as this, the, the pilots will work together to, to split duties. Um, one of them will run through the checklist, while the other one communicates with air traffic control and actually physically flies the plane. And um, in this case, the experience of the pilots was extensive. Um, you guys ever heard of the 10,000-hour rule? If you've never heard of the 10,000-hour rule, it basically says this. The key to achieving true expertise at any skill is simply a matter of practicing, albeit the correct way, for at least 10,000 hours. Um, these pilots were double experts. Sully was a, formal, a former U.S. Air Force fighter pilot. He had logged 19,663 flight hours. To, to put that in perspective, that would be the equivalent of flying straight for two years and three months. He had flown over 4,765 hours, it's about six and a half months for the time, just in that, that particular A320. Um, his um, co-pilot, Skiles, had logged 20,727 hours, just two years and four and a half months worth of flying time. But in that particular A320, it only logged 37 hours, and, and most people don't, don't know it, but he was actually, that day was his first time being at the controls. He was the pilot flying um, with only 37 hours of experience in that one, but again, 20,000 hours of experience flying. After hitting this flock of geese, Sully, realizing that the engines had shut down and, and realizing that Skiles was um, less experienced in the A320, he took over the flight controls, and Skiles went through the checklist, trying to get the engines restarted, but was unable. And at an altitude of 3,000 feet, um, the plane and its 155 souls began a glided descent. No power. Sully radios to 
to Mayday Air Traffic Control, and, and their initial response is return to LaGuardia, LaGuardia, and he says, nope, can't do it. Um, he asked about the, the option to land at Teetersboro, which is kind of nearby, and they said, yep, you're cleared to land there, and initially he said, okay, that's what we're going to do, but then he says, we're unable. He said, we can't do it, we're going to be in the Hudson. Speaking of the Hudson River, which, by the way, was 41 degrees, and the air temperature was 19 that day. And many of you know the rest of this story. Miraculously, only five minutes after takeoff, Captain Sully makes an unpowered water landing in the middle of the Hudson River. And over the next 24 minutes, through the coordinated efforts of first responders, pilots, uh, flight attendants, um, the plane was evacuated. You've probably seen the pictures of passengers standing on the wings, ankle and knee deep in water. Waterway ferries and and numerous other boats, including the Coast Guard, come by and and everyone is rescued. Amazing story. And a few months after the crash, um, Captain Sully was being interviewed by AARP magazine and, and they were asking him, you know, how were you able to execute a nearly perfect water landing? From only 3,000 feet, um, in less than two and a half minutes after you lose power from your engines. And his, his response struck me. He said, well, one way of looking at it might be that for 42 years, I've been making small, regular deposits in this bank of experience, education, and training. And on January 15th, the balance was sufficient so that I could make a very large withdrawal. What a statement. Another statement you've probably heard that kind of captures this thought is that, um, you ever heard the statement, in our adversity, we don't rise to our expectations, but we fall to the level of our training. You ever heard that? Pretty popular military statement. But hear Sully's response one more time. They're basically asking them, in the, in the face of adversity, in the face of affliction, in the, in the face of sure disaster, how did you keep your calm? For 42 years, I made small deposits, regular deposits, in my bank of experience, education, and training, to the point that when I needed the large withdrawal, I was able to make it. This has everything to do with what we're going to hear from Psalm 119 this morning. The psalmist is, he finds himself facing affliction, pitfalls, brought almost to the point of death. And it is in the midst of this affliction that he puts his focus and attention on the experience, the education, the training that he finds in the Word of God. And in looking to the Word of God, the psalmist was looking to God himself, because be reminded this morning that the Scriptures were and are the very breath of God, and they're not separate things. The Word of God is His breathed out Word. We know that from 2 Timothy 3.16, and we also know that um, it's profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I think it's safe to say this morning that the psalmist was a double expert in the Word of God. He had spent 10,000 hours and then some delighting in it, valuing it, meditating on it, learning from it, keeping it, 
putting his hope and trust in it and finding mercy, comfort, and life in it. This morning we're going to spend our time in the the ninth through the twelfth stanzas of Psalm 19. If you'll remember, Psalm 19 is, is made up of 22 stanzas. and they, It follows the order of the Hebrew alphabet um, in order. And each, each stanza is made up of eight verses. And every one of those verses in the corresponding section begins with that particular letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So if you see in your scriptures this morning the headings of Tet, Yod, Kof, in Lamed, those are pointing to the Hebrew letters that are being used. Um, if you would, I want you to turn to Psalm 119 with me this morning. And we're going to read verses 65 through 96. Would you hear the word of the Lord? You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord. According to your word, teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of, thousands of gold and silver pieces. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn from your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame, because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, that I may not be put to shame. My soul longs for your salvation, I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth. But I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day, for all things are your servants." If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I've seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. 
you pray with me? Father, this morning, would you reveal your glory through the preaching of your word? As we just sung, where else can we go to find the words of eternal life? God, show us Christ this morning through your word. Amen. We have four points this morning that we're going to cover, um, and through them we're going to bounce around a little bit in the sections, but if you're a note taker, I'll, I'll give you the four points now, and then we'll, I'll tell them to you again, but, and I dug deep into the thesaurus this week and made some alliteration for you so you can, you know, get all of those matching letters down, but uh, here's the points we're going to talk about this morning. The first one is uh, the circumstances and the condition of the psalmist. The circumstances and the condition of the psalmist. Second point will be the confidence and conviction of the psalmist. The confidence and conviction of the psalmist. Third point, the comfort and care of God and his word. So you have the comfort and care of God and his word. And then our fourth point this morning will be the continuance and the completeness of of God's word, the continuance and the completeness of God's word. <clears throat> As we look to the circumstances and condition of the psalmist, let's begin with a quick recounting of what we just read, um, just dealing with the circumstances that the psalmist is facing here. Verse 67, he says, I'm afflicted. 69, uh, the insolent, speaking of the proud, the haughty, the arrogant, they smear me with lies. Verse 70, their heart is unfeeling like fat. His enemies were ruthless and hurtful and um, spreading outrageous lies about him. Verse 71, I was afflicted. Verse 75, you, speaking of Yahweh, you have afflicted me. Verse 76, let your steadfast love comfort me. The psalmist is in need of comfort. Let your mercy come to me. He's in need of mercy. Verse 77, verse 78, again, the insolent have wronged me with falsehood. They've concocted lies against me. Verse 81, my soul longs for your salvation. Uh, the innermost being of the psalmist here is aching for the, for the salvation of God that he so desperately needs. Verse 82, my eyes long for your promise, and I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? There's a, there's a sense of discouragement in the psalmist here. Verse 85, uh, the insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They've set traps for my feet. Verse 86, the, they persecute me with falsehood. Help me. And then notice the, the level of the affliction that he's facing in verse 87. They have almost made an end of me on earth. In verse 92, um, I... I would have perished in my affliction. Verse 95, the wicked lie in wait to destroy me. Sounds pretty serious, doesn't it? Psalmist is facing very real and dangerous opposition from his enemies. Um, and what we see described here may not even be the, the full extent of it, but it's, it's fair to say that we get a pretty good understanding of the affliction and persecution that the psalmist is facing here. 
And yet in these circumstances, I want you to notice the condition of the servant, the servant, the condition of the psalmist. Uh, yes, there seems to be a level of discouragement here. But notice that there is not despair. He is, he's longing for comfort. He's longing for salvation. He's longing for deliverance from his enemies. And he's looking to the promises of God to bring that about. And he cries out to the Lord, help me. Verse 94, he says, save me. And evidently this, this wait, this longing, um, has been a long period. It's been so long that he compares himself to um, a wineskin that is left in the, in the smoke. And for those of you who don't know, a wineskin is basically a bottle before it was a bottle. Um, it's a container made of the hide of an animal, leather, and it was, it was meant to hold liquid. And, and this saying here that um, like a wineskin in the smoke, I think it has a, a double meaning here, and I think both may be true about the psalmist. First, um, if you were to take a, a wineskin and it's empty, and you would hang it up into the rafters of your house, a house that is um, heated by a fire, in these times would have been, uh, it's left and exposed to the smoke of that fire. And eventually, over a long period of time, what's going to happen to that wineskin? It's going to turn black, it's, it's going to dry out, it's going to shrivel up, it's going to crack. And I think in the psalmist's outer man, I have no doubt that he was feeling this way. But I think there's a second aim here in, in pointing to a wineskin in the smoke because it was also the, the custom of, of ancient cultures to take a wineskin full of wine and intentionally hang it near the smoke of a fire for a different reason. With the wineskin being full, it wouldn't risk drying out. And over time, the the constant warmth of the smoke and the fire would mellow and ripen and refine that wine significantly. So I think the psalmist here, exposed to affliction, exposed to persecution and, and pitfalls, almost to the point of death, very likely in his flesh, feels as if he is shriveling up and cracking. But these things don't break him. They don't bring him to despair because in his soul, he's delighting in the law of the Lord. He's remembering the statutes of the Lord. He's living according to the testimonies and precepts of the Lord, and in them finds hope and comfort and life. And God is using this affliction in the life of the psalmist for his good. How do we know that? Verse 67, the psalmist admits such. He says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It is, and then go down to verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous. And listen to this. In your faithfulness, you've afflicted me. It seems that there was a time in the psalmist's life where he went astray. Yet he's able to now say, but now I keep your word. He went astray and he's brought back. What brought him back? It was the affliction. And what, what was the purpose of the affliction bringing him back? That he would learn the statutes of the Lord and that he, he would know and understand that the rules of the Lord are righteous. And I think we can all relate to this. If we were honest, there have been seasons in our lives where we've neglected God and the good gift of his word. 
the thoughts of our flesh, the thoughts and ideologies of this world have taken center stage in our lives and we've lived according to those things, straying from God. But God, rich in his mercy, through his loving discipline and through affliction, has worked in us for our good and brought us back to a place to where we, like the psalmist, can say, before you afflicted me, I was astray, but now I keep your word and your rules are righteous. We should thank God for his loving discipline and his affliction. Spurgeon put it this way about his own life. He said, I, for, for my part, I owe more, I think, to the anvil and the hammer, to the fire and to the file, than anything else. I bless the Lord for the correctives of his providence, by which, if he has blessed me on the one hand with sweets, he has blessed me on the other hand with bitters. And Luther said, I never knew the meaning of God's word until I came into affliction. I've always found it to be one of my best schoolmasters. The point is this, that affliction is going to produce in us one of two things. One of two conditions. We'll either draw closer to God in affliction or we'll pull further away from him. In pulling away from God in affliction, we'll gain nothing. But in drawing closer to God in affliction, because his faithfulness working on us to do so, um, we will be able to agree with the psalmist and say, your affliction was for my good, and you were faithful in it. Uh, it brings us to our second point this morning, and that's looking at the conviction and the confidence of the psalmist. Uh, maybe, maybe many of you in this morning have, have known someone that's faced hardship. Maybe it's been you. You've faced depression, temptation, pain, addiction, loss, persecution, Maybe those things have caused the person you know or you to become bitter towards God. To become bitter towards your circumstances. To become bitter and hateful and spiteful towards others. But it wasn't so with the psalmist. Verse 69. Notice his response. The insolent smear, we, smear me with lies. And he says, I'm going to smear their names. With lies. Is that what he says? No. But with my whole heart, I keep your precepts. Verse 70. Their heart is unfeeling like fat. His response is, I'm, I'm done with them. They're dead to me. I have no feelings for them. No, that's not his response. His response is, I delight in your law. Verse 78. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. He responds with, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find a way to bring up wrong and lie about them and hurt them. No. He says, as for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Verse 87. They've almost made an end of me on this earth. His response, it's not, I'm going to end them. His response is, I have not forsaken your precepts. And then in verse 95. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me. And I think our first thought is, well, not if I destroy them first. But that's not the response of the psalmist here. He says, the wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. At every turn, 
The psalmist facing lies, falsehood, defamation of character, entrapment, potential destruction. He doesn't turn to to retaliation. He doesn't turn to retribution. Instead, he returns to the law of the Lord. Again, to quote quote Spurgeon dealing with this, he he said um, his instruction to us when facing affliction, when facing hardship, when facing lies and falsehood, he said, study the law of God, not the law of retaliation. The proud are not worth a thought. The worst injury they can do is take us away from our devotions. Let us baffle them by keeping all the closer to our God when they are most malicious in their own, own thoughts. And, and the psalmist does just such that. He responds every time by devoting himself to the word of the Lord. Again, let's recount his responses along the way. Verse 67, but now I keep your word. Verse 69, with my whole heart I keep your precepts. 77, your law is my delight. 78, I will meditate on your precepts. 83, I have not forgotten your statutes. 87, I have not forsaken your precepts. 93, I will never forget your precepts. 94, I have sought your precepts. 95, I consider your testimonies. How is the psalmist able to draw near to God in his affliction and to stay away from retaliation and retribution and being bitter and spiteful? It has everything to do with his convictions. A conviction is... In consulting Webster's Dictionary, a conviction is a firmly held belief. Not only that, it goes a little further than that. It's also the quality of showing that one is firmly convinced of what he believes and says. Okay, It's to say that you believe it, and it's also to live as if you believe it. That is conviction, and the psalmist is clearly convinced and convicted that the word of God is supreme above all things, And that he's going to delight in it, meditate on it, learn from it, and keep it. And then in verse 92, um, this is just a massive statement of conviction. He says, if your law had not been my delight, I would have what? I would have perished in my affliction. We could flip that around. The only way to not perish in our affliction is to make the law of the Lord our delight. And therein lies the the psalmist's confidence. He says, if not for you, I would have perished. He is resting in the goodness of God. He is resting in the promises of God. And this confidence, I think it shows up in three ways here. Uh, First, the, the confidence of the psalmist is that he belongs to a good and faithful God. And, and remember, remember the covenant promise that the psalmist is looking to. Okay? God has told his people, I will be your God and you will be my people. That is his covenant promise to him. And the psalmist recounts that in, in verse 94. He says, I am yours. And then his confidence is in the fact that God is his creator. There in verse 73, your hands have made and fashioned me. 
Verse 75, you have dealt well with your servant. Verse 68, he confesses his confidence in the fact that God is good and does good. 75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous. Verse 86, he finds confidence in the fact that all your commandments, all of the Lord's commandments are sure. And in verse 90, he finds confidence in the faithfulness of God and that it extends to all generations. Believer, this morning I want to ask you if, well, I want to ask you to ask yourself if you have this kind of confidence in the Word of God. And if you don't, I want to ask you for a moment to consider how God has dealt with you in Christ, how God has dealt with you in the promises of his word. He created you. Scripture says he knit you together in your mother's womb. He chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. He called you through the preaching of the good news of the gospel. He gave you his spirit and through the spirit a new birth unto eternal life with God. He gave you the righteousness of Christ to cover you and save you from the wrath of God so that now as he looks on you, he doesn't see your sin but sees the righteousness of his son. He sees you as if you have never sinned and as if you have kept the law perfectly. He's adopted you as his child and you are now joint heirs with his son, Jesus, brothers and sisters of the son of God. And he's now working in you to conform you to the image of his son. That day by day you would look more and more like him in the way that you think, in the way that you speak, in the way that you act. And he is, even more than that, he has sealed you and he has guaranteed you with his Holy Spirit. And he is sustaining and preserving you until that day when Jesus comes again. And we have the promise, according to the word of God, that on that day when Jesus does return, that we will be made whole. We will be glorified, and we will live eternally with God. You see, in the end, in Christ, the believer will have victory over death. Brothers and sisters, if you lack any confidence, look to the word of God. Look to what he has done for you in Christ. Christ. And you should be able to echo the psalmist's statement of thanksgiving in verse 65. O Lord, you have dealt well with your servant, according to your word. The second way that the psalmist demonstrates his confidence here is that he understands that the Lord is going to deal with his enemies. He understands that it is God's place to judge. Look there in verse 78. Let the insolent be put to shame. He's not seeking to put them to shame himself. Verse 84, when will you judge those who persecute me? He understands it is God's place to judge. Verse 85, the insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. They, they persecute me with falsehood. Help me. Again, the psalmist is crying out to and appealing to God for help rather than taking up the banner of retaliation and judgment himself. His confidence in God that he will deal with his enemies. And then the third way the psalmist shows his confidence here in 119 is that he, he understood that in his convictions, 
that he would be an encouragement to others. Look at verse 74. The psalmist says, those who fear you, those who, are, those who belong to, to the Lord, they will see me and rejoice. Why? Because the psalmist has been convicted and convinced of the goodness of God's word and has hoped in it. And then in verse 79, the psalmist says, let those, again, who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. The psalmist here understands that, that we as God's people, we need each other. And by living his life in righteousness, fearing the Lord, delighting in, learning from, and, and knowing and hoping in the word of God, he knew that he would be an encouragement to others. And he knew that they would come to see the goodness of God's testimonies and in that be filled with hope, be filled with joy. And flowing out of all of that, the psalmist can say with absolute conviction and confidence in verse 17, and this should be our this should be our conviction and confidence as well. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. It is indeed invaluable. This brings us to our final section this morning, and that is the comfort and care of God and his word. Excuse me, the third section this morning. Remember again the state of the psalmist. He's, he's in affliction. He's, he's a little discouraged. Verse 81, my soul longs for your salvation. I, I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. And I ask, when will you comfort me? And he cries out to God, let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant and let your Mercy, come to me. When we find ourselves in times of affliction, when we find ourselves in, in time of discouragement, it is right and good for us to cry out for the comfort and care and mercy of the Lord. Uh, who else would we turn to? And that's exactly where the psalmist points us. Turn to the word of God Turn to God for mercy and comfort. And yet this morning we can confess that oftentimes we turn to too many other things, too many worthless things to find comfort and mercy. But the psalmist points us to the steadfast love of the Lord. Not only does the Lord provide comfort and mercy, but he also provides care. And one of the practical ways that God cared for the psalmist here is that he we read it in verse 66 that he taught him good judgment and knowledge. In his word, he revealed to the psalmist knowledge. And in that, the difference between good and bad judgment. Because apart from God's knowledge revealed to us in his word, <clears throat> where are we left to look for making judgments? Where are we left to look to wisdom? Well, we look to our flesh and we look to the world around us and we look to the things of Satan, and, and if those things are our sources for informing our thinking and informing our decisions and judgments, our judgments are going to turn out wrong. Our thoughts are going to turn out evil. But God's cared for us, and he has not left us to ourselves. He's given us knowledge and good judgment through his word. But he also provides life-giving care in his word. Look at verse 77. Let your mercy come to me, 
And what does that mercy bring? Life. That I may live. In verse 88, in your steadfast love, God, give me life. Literally, revive me. Verse 93, for by your precepts you have given me life. Verse 94, the psalmist cries out and confesses to God, I am yours, save me. He understands here that salvation and life come from the steadfast love of God, revealed to us in his word. The psalmist knows he can't give himself life. He can't revive himself. In fact, he even understands that he doesn't deserve life. Instead, he is totally dependent on the promises and the steadfast love of the Lord for life-giving care. And what should this life-giving care produce in us? Verse 77, delight in the law of the Lord. Verse 88, we keep the testimonies of the Lord's mouth. Verse 93, that we remember his precepts forever. Verse 94, that we seek his precepts. Uh, This entire 119th Psalm celebrates the gift of God's word that provides comfort and life-giving care. And when we understand that, it should produce in us a deep yearning, um, as we said earlier, to not only be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word and live in a way that reflects the goodness of the gift of God's word. In our final section this morning, we're going to look at the continuance and the completeness of God's word. Verse 89 begins, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. The psalmist is meditating on the unchanging nature of God's word. Um, You could say it is settled, fixed firmly in the heavenly realm, and therefore, because it is fixed firmly in the heavenly realm, it will not change. And notice it's not just settled temporarily. What, What does it begin with in verse 89? It says, forever. Forever firmly fixed. For all of eternity. And because it is fixed in the heavens, there's no subjectivity to it. It is objectively settled. doesn't matter whether someone believes it or not. doesn't matter if someone blasphemes against it. The truth is that God's word is firmly fixed in the heavens and is an objective truth and is unchanging. Now, sure, we can admit here that on the earth there are people who are seeking to well, they treat the word of God as if it is subjective. They'll read whatever they want into it, and they'll extract whatever they want out of it. And that's all the more reason this morning that we meditate on and delight in the law of the Lord. So we must know it for ourselves. So that if someone else comes along and they're, they're peddling some subjective version of the, God, the word of God, we can stand and say No. It doesn't line up with the Word of God. And the Word of God is objective. And it is forever lasting because it is firmly fixed in the heavens. In this continuance of God's Word, the, 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 the fact that it is forever firmly fixed should 
Give us an unwavering confidence in it. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says this, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. And in Matthew 24, 35, Jesus himself says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Then in verse 90, we look to the faithfulness of God. The psalmist says, Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day, for all things are your servants. You know, I think we can all agree that at some point in our lives, um, especially as we get older, we look back to the past and we say, man, the past sure does seem a whole lot better than the present, doesn't it? You know, we thought, man, I wish I could have grown up in the 50s. Things seemed so much better then. We're just dumb for thinking that, but... And then we're probably sitting there right now and we're looking to the future. Ugh, it's bleak, isn't it? In our pessimism, we have this gloomy outlook of the future. Uh, believers, this morning, look, be encouraged by the words of the psalmist here. God is what? He's faithful. And his faithfulness is going to continue, it's not going to cease. So it doesn't matter what this world's going to go to. It doesn't matter how good you think the past was and the present is now and what the future will be. The bottom line is the word of God is forever firmly fixed in the heavens. It is objective, unchanging, and the faithfulness of God will endure. Not only that, but we can look to God as our creator. He has created all things. He's established the earth, all that is in it, including us. And the only reason that we are standing here today, the only reason that this earth is still here today, is because God has deemed it to be so. We can find confidence in the fact and that the created serves the creator. Oftentimes we like to get that twisted. Okay, but no, he is in control. God is in perfect control of his creation. We can find great confidence in that. He is going to be faithful to bring about that which is best for his glory, that which is best for the good of his people. And then the psalmist concludes this 12th and last, last stanza that we're studying this morning with this. And this will help us get a picture of the completeness of God's word. He says, I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. The psalmist here, he's probably considering all that he has ever seen and all that he has ever experienced in the world. Um, He's probably thinking of the things that he has seen in nature, the wonders of the moon and the stars and the sun. As he looks to the the grandness of the mountains and the the power of the seas and... um, the power of a storm. Maybe he was considering the, the, intricate, the, the intricate way with which the body is made. The way that all things in our body f- function to near perfection. Um, and, and as we know, 
just how bad things set us off when one of those things stops working, like a little spot in your lower back. Or, you know, maybe he's amazed by the intricacy of the human body. Um, think for a moment of some of the greatest people that you've ever known in all facets of life. Think of the greatest sports people you've ever known, the greatest scientists, the greatest engineers. As astounding as all of these things are, as, as brilliant as all of these people are, they're not perfect, are they? They all have an end. In some aspect or another, they aren't complete. There is a limit and a boundary to them all. Yet it is not so with the word of the Lord. God's word is absolutely complete. There's nothing lacking in it because it is the breathed out word of God himself and there is nothing lacking in him. His law, his commandments, his precepts, his testimonies, his rules, his statutes, his promises, they have no end, they have no limit, they have no boundary. They are right, they're good, they're perfect, they are enduring. God's word is all-encompassing it is all sweeping. It is totally revel- relevant to every aspect of our life. There's no limit to it. There is no end to its perfection. It is true and faithful. It will never fail. We'll conclude with this. God is indeed good. His word is true. It is fixed in the heavens forever. His faithfulness is unending. It'll extend to beyond you and me. It'll extend to generations beyond you and me that follow. And all that happens and unfolds in this world is under his providential rule and care. Therefore, brothers and sisters, when enemies dig a pitfall for you, when you feel crushed or under the weight of affliction, turn to God and his word for comfort. Look to him. He has dealt well with you. He gives mercy. He gives comfort. And he gives life. And I want to draw you back to Captain Sullenberger's response. In the face of adversity, how did you remain calm? How did you not melt? How did you not wither and crack? said, for 42 years, I've been making small, regular deposits in this bank of experience, education, and training. And on January 15th, the balance was sufficient so that I could make a very large withdrawal. If disaster strikes tomorrow for you, if the faithful affliction and discipline of the Lord comes to you tomorrow, is the balance of your delight Is the balance of your meditation on the word of God sufficient enough that you can make a withdrawal from it? Are you convinced enough in the goodness of God's word that in affliction that you will run and cling to it? Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we are thankful for your word. You indeed have dealt well with us according to your promise. 
By it, you give conviction. By it, you give comfort. By it, you care for us. By it, you give mercy. By it, you reveal yourself to us. Father, by it, you work in us salvation by the work of your Son, by the power of your Spirit. Father, help us this morning as we seek to delight in it and not forsake it, meditate on it. We need help in these things. God, we cry out to you, save us, help us. Amen.